Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Random Interesting Facts. The podcast about everything and nothing. With your host, 42. This week's topic is bylaws. So, let's dive right in with fact number one. It is illegal to handle a salmon in suspicious circumstances. Yes, this is a genuine law that you'll find in the Salmon Act of 1986. And no, it doesn't mean you can be arrested for loitering at the Waitrose fish counter wearing a hoodie. And this law has been quoted in many an online list of wacky British laws, of which we have many. And sure, our legal system is rife with anachronistic twaddle. And I know this sounds like a mental one, but the true origins of the suspicious salmon handling law are simply that the onus lies on you to prove that the salmon you happen to be lugging around over your shoulder got there via a licensed seller and not some shifty-looking bloke down the pub who's clearly poached it from a local river. You see, river salmon numbers were in decline in the 1980s, and poaching was seen as one of the primary causes. That's poaching salmon, as in stealing it, by the way, rather than delicately poaching it in a lightly seasoned broth with shallots, parsley, cracked black pepper, and then putting it in an oven-proof dish to crisp up a little. Hmm, making myself rather hungry here. The English language really doesn't help itself sometimes. Anyway, the reason this new act was introduced in 1986 is that the existing salmon laws, yes, salmon laws, were just not up to scratch. They were confusing and needed straightening out. And this new law is no joke. You can get slapped with a large fine or even imprisonment if you're caught with a poached salmon in your possession. What's interesting about this law in the whole handling it in suspicious circumstances section is that it's actually a relaxation of a more punitive, archaic law. You see, there used to be a British law that made it a prosecutable offence to possess, at any time, a salmon that has been illegally taken, killed or landed. Which meant that if you bought a fish from your respectable-looking fishmonger, who had, entirely unbeknownst to you, got it from a poacher or poached it himself, you could be the one who ended up in handcuffs and not said fishmonger. That's like arresting Sweeney Todd's customers for murdering one of his victims just because they ate his pies. I mean, they probably deserve it, to be honest, if they're going to willingly eat the advertised worst pies in London. 
So with this new law that it's legal to handle a salmon in suspicious circumstances, it's actually much more relaxed because it means if you buy an illegal salmon from your fishmonger but you're unaware, you're probably not going to be handling it very suspiciously because you don't think you've got illegal produce in your hands. So as long as you don't look fishy, then you won't get slapped with a fine or imprisonment. When this new law was suggested in the 80s, politicians argued for hours that it contravened the presumption of innocence as enshrined in both Scottish and English law. Because even if you do look suspicious handling your salmon, it would be nice to just have the presumption of innocence. They got rather heated about it, but eventually the law was passed and there we have it. One of the most ridiculous sounding, but actually rather sensible laws in the world. The objective of laws and bylaws is broadly to make our world a more orderly place, but sometimes that principle can get taken a bit too far by over-enthusiastic law enforcers, or lawmakers. For instance, in 1969, the ultimate Jobsworth had his moment of glory by insisting that the Apollo 11 astronauts filled in a customs declaration form when they arrived back home from their historic first trip to the moon. Yes, really. I'm not exactly sure what the import duties on moon rocks were at the time, but that's a whole different kettle of fish. It certainly makes the salmon law seem positively quotidian. Next up, moments from history. Where each week we look back at one particularly odd moment from the past. In this episode, we're going back to the 27th of February, 1943, when a small group of Norwegian commandos survived purely on the contents of reindeer stomachs. Some people will go to extreme lengths to prove they've got guts, and things don't get much gutsier than living for months in sub-zero conditions on the semi-digested contents of a reindeer's gut. Even Santa doesn't resort to eating Rudolph when he gets peckish. Reindeer are ruminants, like cows, which means they pre-digest their mossy dinner in one stomach chamber before regurgitating it as a gloopy mass, then chewing it up again and swallowing it once more. This pre-digested gloop, called cud, might look disgusting, but crucially, it turns those plants into a rich source of vitamin C and other vital nutrients. Which, if you happen to be a human looking to survive inside the Arctic Circle, this vitamin C can be the difference between life and death. And many Victorian-era Arctic explorers had failed to realise this. They didn't understand that Inuits are only able to live on a diet of meat and fat, with hardly any greens at all, because they eat every bit of the reindeer they hunt including the vitamin C-rich stomach and other offal. Without any fruit or veg to hand, Westerners headed for the pole who shunned the nasty-tasting offal had unwittingly condemned themselves to a gruesome death by scurvy. On the bright side, 
apparently could doesn't smell all that bad. It has an aromatic though acidic odour. So if you can somehow get over the concept of eating pre-digested food, it's simply a very colourful and rather pungent vitamin C packed addition to a plate of your reindeer tenderloin that could very well save your life. But back to the origins of our story. The reason the Norwegian commandos from the Special Operatives Executive ended up tucking into reindeer steak and could was because the Allies believed the Germans were steps away from manufacturing nuclear bombs. And a vital component of the German nuclear program, heavy water, was only manufactured in one place, the near impenetrable icebound fortress of Vermorg, Norway. Unsurprisingly, the Allies were very keen to destroy it. Heavy water is used to keep nuclear reactions going. It's got the same atoms as regular water, one oxygen and two hydrogen, but unlike regular hydrogen, these hydrogen atoms have a neutron as well as a proton, which makes it heavy water. Heavy water slows down the nuclear reaction, acting like neutron traffic cops enforcing a speed limit, which makes the whole process viable using natural uranium, rather than necessitating the need to create enriched uranium, which is much more costly and time-consuming. The British originally tried to obliterate the heavy water plant in Vermont by air in November of 1942, but the mission was a total failure. And all but a few of the pilots who tried to blow it up died in the attempt. Meanwhile, a small team of Norwegians, codenamed Grouse, were parachuted inside the Arctic Circle. Their mission was unbelievably tough. First, they had to hunker down in the frozen north for several months, hiding in the harsh wilderness of the Hardanga Plateau, living off dwindling rations and any reindeer, could and all, they managed to hunt and kill. Then, they were expected to trek into Norway without being detected, find their way to Vermorg, climb down a gorge, across an icy river, climb up the rock face on the other side, enter the heavily armed compound, place explosives in rooms deep inside the fortress, and blow the whole thing up. It was basically considered a suicide mission. After the bitterly cold winter of 1942, six more Norwegian commandos were parachuted in to rendezvous with Grouse. Together, the newly formed demolition team headed off on the night of the 27th of February to complete the mission. And much to their surprise, the whole thing went off without a hitch. The only person they encountered in this apparently heavily defended heavy water plant was a Norwegian caretaker who very kindly let them pass. They found their way to the heavy water chambers deep in the bowels of the fortress, where they placed the explosives and lit the fuses. 
And to avoid Nazi reprisals against the locals, a Tommy gun was planted at the scene to implicate the British. Charming! Thanks very much, Norway. Not only did the demolition team succeed in blowing up the chambers and destroying all the heavy water in production in the whole of Norway, around 500 kilos of it, every one of them escaped unscathed. By the time the Germans realised they'd been attacked, the commandos were miles away. Some had travelled by ski to Sweden in the east, and the rest spread out over the plateau and disappeared into the wilderness. Despite dispatching 3,000 soldiers to scour the countryside for the saboteurs, the Nazis didn't catch a single one. Now, the Allies, of course, had hoped this mission would have set the Germans' nuclear programme back a bit, at least by a year. But, within a few months, the plant was up and running again. That Adolf guy didn't mess around, did he? Without the element of surprise, a repeat sabotage attack was deemed way too risky, so instead the US Air Force sent two bombing raids in November 1943. They didn't cause much damage to the plant itself, but they made the Nazis nervous enough to decide to ship all the heavy water they'd managed to produce over to Germany sharpish. On their way, the barrels would have to be ferried across Lake Tin, which at 430 metres is one of the deepest lakes in Norway. On the 20th of February 1944, just after the barrels had been loaded onto the ferry, Knut Horkelid, the only commando left in situ and two locals he'd recruited, stuck eight and a half kilos of plastic explosives to the ferry's keel. And when it was mid-lake, they blew it sky high. Unfortunately, taking out 14 of the civilian crew and passengers on board, as well as four German soldiers. But this ended Germany's heavy water production and, along with it, the Nazis' nuclear program. <sighs> well, that's a relief. Many years later, one of the barrels containing heavy water was dredged up and analysed. It turns out the Germans hadn't managed to produce nearly enough to supply even a single nuclear reactor, let alone create a nuclear bomb. So all that surviving on reindeer could, and extreme risk to life, probably didn't have any real impact on the fate of the war. Uh, hindsight can be a bit of a reindeer gut punch sometimes, but it doesn't take away from the true heroism of those men. Now, we'll take a short break, and soon we'll be back with fact number two. Fact number two. It was once illegal to eat mince pies on Christmas Day. Now, before you start plotting a rebellion or planning where to hide those tempting seasonal pastries next December, you're not going to be arrested for munching mince pies this Christmas. I know COVID regulations have gone a bit too far recently, but don't worry. 
they've not touched our precious mince pies. Yet there was a time in history when it was illegal to eat mince pies. And that was Christmas Day of 1644. And it still remained a risky undertaking for more than 15 years afterwards. That was because England in the 1640s was ruled by Puritans. Puritans were basically extreme killjoys who loved passing laws banning anything fun. They outlawed dancing, theatres, singing, Easter, and even Sunday walks. Boys could be whipped for kicking a ball around, and women could end up in the stocks for doing practically anything at all, such as wearing makeup, or, God forbid, plumping up the cushions on a Sunday. Mm, still, not as bad as 2020 regulations though. This particular Christmas day in 1644 fell on an official fasting day. And the Puritans had passed a law in 1642 enforcing an all-day fast on the last Wednesday of every month. You know, just for the shits and giggles, I guess. And since Christmas that year was a Wednesday, hey presto, there could be no party food and no mince pies. This also happened to be a critical point in the English Civil War. Puritan leaders feared that if they let people have a Merry Christmas, their supporters, who'd been whipped up into a frenzy against anything that smacked of woke liberalism, <laughs> sorry, wrong century, I mean pageant-loving Catholicism, would get their arms in a tizzy because they were disrespecting God. And the Puritans worried that infuriating their base might lose them the war. So they did what any corrupt government does when it's faced with a problem. They doubled down. They passed a new law in 1644 banning Christmas itself. No services, no festivals and no feasts. Ergo, no mince pies. Mince pies weren't actually specifically named in the law, but they've come to epitomise the absurdity of the law. Because as we all know, mince pies are obviously the most important aspect of Christmas. Three years later, those crusty Puritans doubled down once again, outlawing private Christmas celebrations. This move was deeply unpopular and caused violent rioting around the country. Things haven't really changed, have they? The new law was passed in June of 1647, but news travelled so slowly back then that some people only learnt about the new regulations in December. For some people, the news only reached their homes when a group of soldiers rolled up, banged on the door, and confiscated the duck, the trimmings, and the decorations to boot. And as we discovered last year, Nobody likes their Christmas cancelled. There was then sporadic pro-Christmas unrest each year since the 1644 ban. There was a violent mob in London, and in Ipswich, a rioter named Christmas was killed. Maybe they assumed his existence was now illegal. The worst rioting happened in Canterbury, where protesters smashed up shops that had opened on Christmas Day and seized control of the city. 
and we generally all know what happened from there. William Cromwell seized control of Parliament quite a few times, purged the remaining royalists, and ultimately Charles I, King of England, lost his head in 1649. The Puritan legislation was then put in force for a few years until it was eventually overturned when Charles II was restored to the throne in 1660. Thankfully, the anti mint Pie Law was repealed, but a lot of other strange laws have stayed on the statute books for centuries, including gems such as it's illegal to imitate a Chelsea pensioner, which was only rescinded in 2008 and a law introduced in 1541 that every Englishman aged 17 to 69 must keep and practice with a longbow was finally repealed in 1960. I'm pretty sure most men in the 60s couldn't use a longbow. So that law obviously wasn't being too enforced. Even now you can theoretically be pardoned by the monarch for accidentally shooting someone with a bow and arrow. The law introduced by Henry VIII still stands today, apparently. But I wouldn't count on the Queen coming to your rescue if you do skewer your neighbour. So I'd just stick to breaking the law in other ways if I were you, like eating mince pies whilst dressed as a Chelsea pensioner, just for good measure. Fact number three. There is no bylaw in Canada that stops you from building a supervillain hideout under public land. And we only know this because that's effectively what someone did. You might think from all the laws we've mentioned so far that there's legislation to cover every possible eventuality. Given that there are specific bylaws forbidding the unlikely, such as firing a cannon within 300 yards of someone's home, to the inevitable, like being drunk in a pub. To the damn right it should be, like queue jumping, and the damn right bonkers, like pelican touching, if you happen to find one in a London park. Yes, the English law doesn't leave much room for ambiguity. But sometimes lawmakers can't quite anticipate the creative madness of humans. Occasionally, someone out there does something you'd think surely must be a crime, but they get away with it, simply because no one else had thought to do it first. A fair number of people who commit these non-crimes end up winning Darwin Awards, a satirical internet award that recognises people who've selectively excluded themselves from the human gene pool by dying through utter stupidity. Proud recipients of the Darwin Award include the man who booby-trapped himself to death and the bloke who tried to take a selfie with an injured bear. Guess what happened next? But I digress, there are plenty of laws that have been written in response to human behaviour, often to protect us from ourselves. Seatbelt wearing, for instance, was made a law because too many people saw it as an infringement of their freedoms and outright refused to wear one. 
As car crash deaths continue to rise due to people being flung against a windscreen and thrown out of the car, the authorities lost their patience and enshrined it in law. But when a mysterious tunnel was discovered under a park in Toronto, Canada in 2015, authorities weren't sure whether to make a new law or simply congratulate the perpetrator because he just committed one of the most inventive non-crimes in history. The tunnel was discovered by accident by a university employee. It was hidden under a piece of corrugated iron and situated at the bottom of a three meter shaft. The tunnel was around 10 meters long and two meters high with reinforced walls and ceiling and appeared to have been dug out using hand shovels Inside, police found an electric generator, a pump, tools, building supplies, discarded food and drink containers, and a rosary and remembrance date poppy. But there was nothing there of a nefarious nature, so they quickly ruled out terrorism, a drug lab, or a cannabis farm. Yet they could think of no good reason why anyone would want to take the time to dig out something that looked remarkably like a railway utility tunnel. They were stumped. But when they eventually tracked down the culprit, they turned out to be a pretty harmless couple of young guys who just wanted somewhere in public to chillax. They were both builders with enough engineering know-how to make a structurally sound underground hangout. So why not spend six months hand-shoveling soil in the Canadian undergrowth rather than, say, bagging a couple of armchairs in the local coffee bar. The park authority and police frantically scoured local statutes to find a bylaw that the part-time troglodytes had flouted. But they drew a blank. They hadn't trespassed or committed criminal damage or threatened public safety. And so there was literally nothing to pin on them. In the end, the authorities had to cave to the man cave. And Toronto could introduce a bylaw to ban future bat caves or Bond villain hideouts, but it seems unlikely that they will. So for now, you can go ahead and build a secret lair under public land in Canada, safe in the knowledge that you won't be infringing any bylaws. So there you go, don't say you don't ever learn anything from me. And that was Random Interesting Facts. Thanks so much for listening, I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, then please rate, review and subscribe so you never miss one in the future. Please do leave a comment if you've learned something new from this episode. And if you have your own random interesting fact that you're just dying to share with me, then please tweet it at me using the hashtag RiffPodcast. That's hashtag RIFPodcast. And thanks again for listening.